0: Well, as the sign says, let's turn to Psalm 73 this morning. You're driving down the street. You're doing 25 miles over the designated speed limit. So it's a 55, you're going 80. Smiling as you go, having a great time, you suddenly realize out of the corner of your eye is a policeman with his radar gun pointed exactly at your car. You know it's too late. He's found you out. Uh, He knows that you're exceeding the speed limit. It's a trap. He's been waiting for you. And so you zoom by and you look into the car to see his reaction. And you see him with a big smile waving as you go by. You deserved a ticket. You didn't get one. What do you do? Do you go home that night and feel rotten all night long that justice hasn't been served? Do you toss and turn and lose sleep and say, it's not fair. It's not right. And then uh, do you go to the station the next day and give yourself up, turn yourself in? Officer, I feel so bad. It's not fair. I should have gotten a ticket. Please cite me. No, your reaction is what? I'm so glad I made it through. Okay, what about if you get a ticket and you didn't deserve it? You were going the speed limit. How do you feel now? He wrote you up. You say, I didn't deserve it, officer. He gave it to you anyway. How do you feel? You feel mad. It's not fair. Now, I know this by personal experience. I recently got a ticket that was unfair and I did contest it in court. I was mad. Or let's say you get a ticket and you did deserve it. I also know this by personal experience on many occasions. (laughs) Nonetheless, you don't feel good. You, You still feel bad. In fact, you think he could have been merciful. He could have let me off the hook. He didn't have to give me a ticket. After all, policemen are known for giving warnings not tickets. Why didn't he do it with me? So here's my point. We love life to be fair when we're benefited and only when we're benefited. Otherwise, forget the fairness. We want mercy applied. But when the tables are turned, the tables of fairness are turned around, when somebody that we think doesn't deserve it is blessed or If something bad happens to us and we feel we didn't deserve it, we scream. And that's exactly what Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, does as he looks at his own life and the lives of those who are around him who are wicked. That's what Psalm 73 is written all about. It's written by Asaph. Asaph was one of the three song leaders under uh, the reign of David. He was a Levite. And he wrestles with one of the most difficult questions in life. Why is there evil if there is a good God? And why do God's people seem to suffer and good people seemingly get off the hook? I say seemingly. His view will change. Max Lucado in his fine book, The Eye of the Storm, says, There's a window in your heart through which you can see God. Once upon a time that window was clear. Your view of God was crisp. You could see God as vividly as you could see a gentle valley or a hillside. The glass was clean, the pane unbroken. You knew God. You knew how he worked. You knew what he wanted you to do. No surprises. Nothing unexpected. You knew that God had a will, and you continually discovered what it was. And then, suddenly, the window cracked. A pebble broke the window. A pebble of pain. Perhaps the stone struck when you were a child and a parent left home forever. Or maybe the rock hit in adolescence when your heart was broken. Maybe you made it into adulthood before that window was cracked, but the pebble came. Was it a phone call? Somebody saying, we have your daughter at the station, you better come down. Was it a letter on the kitchen table that read, I've left, don't try to reach me, don't try to call me, it's over, I just don't love you anymore. Was it a diagnosis from a doctor when he said, I'm afraid our news is not very good? Was it a telegram that read, We regret to inform you that your son is missing in action? Whatever the pebbles formed, the result was the same, a shattered window. The pebble mistled into the pane and shattered it. The crash echoed down the halls of your heart. Cracks shot out from the point of impact creating a spider web of fragmented pieces. And suddenly, God was not so easy to see. The view that had been so crisp had changed. You turned to see God, and his figure was distorted. It was hard to see him through the pain. It was hard to see him through the fragments of hurt. Now that is exactly what happened to the author of Psalm 73. He is a believer with a shattered window. A pebble has reached his life. He believes in God. He believes certain things about God, but his whole belief system is challenged by what he has seen in real life and experience that he has. We begin in verse 1 with a, a truth that he states. He begins with the truth, something he knows, and then he goes downward. In view of the truth, there is a trouble There is something that is bothering me, a problem that is nagging at me. And we'll discover what that is. First of all, the truth that God is good. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel and to such as are pure in heart. Now, this is the affirmation of a believer. It's not the challenge of an unbeliever. It's not an agnostic or some philosopher challenging God or God's goodness. It's Asaph, a believer, beginning with a conviction. His conviction is what? Not only do I believe in God, I believe in a good God. God is good nationally to Israel. God is good individually to such as have a pure heart. That's his view of God. Um, In the next few verses, he'll be shaken from what he knows. He begins with this statement, and now we'll see that there was a time when he doubted it, but he comes back to that assertion, God is good. Now, when he says that, he's got history in mind. He seemingly goes back over the history of the nation of Israel. And if there's any nation that can say God is good, it's Israel. He's been faithful to that nation. Uh, He looks back and remembers perhaps when God promised Abraham a country. Go ahead, Abraham, step out. I'll give you and your posterity a new land. And he did. And when the children of Israel later were in Egypt, he promised that they'd be delivered from bondage. They were. As they were going through the wilderness, helpless, God provided manna from heaven, water from a rock, and delivered them into the new land. And time after time, God was good and faithful to the nation of Israel. Now, I want you just to note something. To this author, Asaph, God was not a philosophical notion. He was not a higher power. He was a real Personality with a real nature, and that nature was essentially good. God is good. Now let me pose to you a question, because probably everybody here would say, Yeah, man, I believe in God. What sort of God do you believe in? Do you believe in a good God, as the Bible defines what is good? You know, there are a lot of ideas of who or what God is these days. And sometimes people say, yeah, I believe in a good God. But listen to their definition. Their God is the all-tolerant-of-anything God. That's their definition of a good God. My God tolerates anything. You can believe anything, take any religious system. Uh, you can practice virtually any kind of behavior. After all, God grades on a curve. And we all get in to heaven at the end. Well, let me say that that's not a good God because... Part of goodness is justice, and if justice is never served, then you don't have a good God. Others believe that God is the big bully God. He's just waiting for me to make a mistake and bam, gotcha. Certainly not a good view of God, certainly not a good God. There was a teenager in Australia on the streets who was having the gospel told to him by a missionary. The missionary was trying every conceivable way to get the idea of God over to this unbelieving teenager. Trying to describe God, he finally said, God is like a father. The teenager recoiled and he said, well, if he's anything like my old man, I want nothing to do with him. Because his own dad beat his mother and beat him in a drunken stupor several times. So his whole view of God was distorted by his personal father. God was not good. But when you turn to the Bible, we see a God that is described by the authors of the Bible, and virtually all of their conclusions is that God is good. For instance, when God creates the world, after every creative act that God ever does, He looks at it and He says, that's good. He makes something else, He says, that's good. In other words, the creation reflects the Creator. The creation is good, that's the essential character of the Creator. In Psalm 107, it says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. In Psalm 52, David writes, The goodness of God endures continually. And then Jesus, in Luke 18, in having a conversation with a fellow, said, There is none good except God alone. So the ultimate personification of good is God according to Jesus. And then John writes in 3 John, anyone who does what is good is from God. So that's Asaph's premise. That's his truth. He believes that. He's always believed that. I know it's true. It's true in our history. God has been good. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So, this man has chosen to view his life and the life of his nation through the lens of the goodness of God. You know... If you took a handful of sand and decided to rub your fingers through that sand to find particles of iron, it would be very tough, wouldn't it? If you say, I'm going to find little bits of iron. You rub your fingers through it, you wouldn't find much. But if you took a magnet over that same hunk of sand, all of those invisible tiny little particles would rush toward the magnet. An unthankful heart... Is like fingers running through sand. Very few mercies are discovered. A thankful heart goes through the day, goes through life, looks back, looks ahead, and finds lots of things to thank God for. God is good. That's his premise. However, an obedient believer who believes the essential truth of God is now going to have a problem. Let's read about his trouble. Verses 2 and 3. But as for me... Okay, I know this to be true. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The truth, God, is good. The trouble, bad people, seem to get away with so much and are so carefree. Now, he has a truth that is challenged by an experience, and he's very frank about it. He says, in effect, my theology doesn't seem to square with the hard facts of life. Because I look around and see wicked, ungodly people with big smiles on their face. They've got it all. They're carefree. And there's God, who's supposed to be good, who doesn't do anything about it. So how can there be a good God when such bad stuff happens? That's why he says, as for me. It was almost enough to do me in. I almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, is Asaph the first person to ever wrestle with this? Every leader, every philosopher, every theologian, every human being has wrestled with this issue from the time the first man and woman were on the earth till now. It's the old question of theodicy. that That's the problem stated in theological terms. Theodicy. Simply this, how can there be a God that is both all-powerful and all-loving who allows evil to exist? In fact, when Gallup Poll asked the American public a very unusual question, which was, if you could have an audience with God, what one question would you ask God? The top questions that people would ask God is, why is there suffering? And secondly, why is there evil allowed to exist? It's a real problem. Now, let's go through these verses. Let's see what he notices. And let me warn you, he's not totally accurate. He's honest with what he feels, but it's not an accurate picture. He has a jaundiced view of what he sees. Verse 4, he describes now the unbeliever in his prosperity. There are no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men Nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They have set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, His people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, this is not an accurate picture. It is honest, but it's not accurate. There are pains in the death of the unbeliever as well. They're not always at ease. They're not always carefree, though that is what he seems to notice. But also, notice that at least he's honest in showing that part of the problem is himself. He says, as for me, I was envious. Now, envy is not a good trait. It's a sin. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, I was envious. I saw what they go through. I noticed what I go through. And I was envious. What was he envious at? Well, first of all, their prosperity. Verse 3. The word in Hebrew is shalom. What does that mean? peace. I look around at the unbeliever and they're filled with peace. They're filled with contentment. It seems shalom is what marks them. Now, why this is bothersome is it goes against our expectations. What do I mean? We expect virtue to be rewarded. We expect evil to be punished. That's fair. So to use our first analogy that we began this message with, He's saying, God, they deserve a ticket. It seems like you've given them a brand new car instead of what they deserve. And so then he compares what they have, what they're going through, their experience with his own oppression. And to use our analogy again, he would be saying, not only have you given them a new car when they deserve a ticket, but here am I, I'm one of your biggest fans and I get the ticket. He was envious when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He also noticed in verse 6 and verse 8 and 9, their pride. He says, therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Verse 8 at the end, they speak loftily. Verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walks through the earth. Uh, This group of people that he notices never stops to give God glory. They never humble themselves. Acknowledging that it could be a blessing from God, they just strut through the earth apart from God prideful now pride is like a telescope turned backwards it magnifies mankind and it pushes the heavens far away pride uh, It's. It's. David must have seen these people who reminded him of the woodpecker I've told you about who was pecking at the tree pecking at the tree pecking at the tree to no avail suddenly uh, thunder was heard and lightning struck the tree and it fell over and the A bird was unharmed but startled, flew back and said, look what I just did. And that's what he saw the unbelievers like, boastful, prideful, giving themselves the glory. And then he seems to also notice that not only are they prosperous and prideful, but they're very popular at the same time that the rest of the world looks up to that kind of a person. That's like the icon of success. He's made it all by himself, apart from God. It's like the lifestyle of the righteous, not a righteous and faithful, but the uh, rich and famous. Here I am, says Asaph, righteous and faithful. Here they are, rich and famous, apart from God. And that cuts deep. It hurts. It's a pebble that shattered his window. Okay, how do we deal with Asaph's problem? How would we answer him? What would we say to a man who says, yeah, God is good, I, I know that, but... When I look around, it doesn't seem to look like that. How do we deal with the problem of evil? Well, let me give you a few ways that people have dealt with this problem. And then we'll end up with Asaph's way, the biblical view. One of the ways people have sought to deal with the problem of evil is called atheism. Simply put this, there can't be evil in existence and at the same time be a God who is good all-powerful, all-loving. They're mutually exclusive. Hence, there's no God. That's atheism. There is no God. And so, guys like Bertrand Russell, when he was alive, who wrote the book, Why I Am Not a Christian, said, I cannot believe in God because you can't conclusively prove God. But he's dealing with the problem of evil, and he says about mankind, he says, mankind is simply an accident in the backwater. In other words, We just came about by random chance. It's all an accident. We just happen to come to be as we are. And because we're an accident, evil is the result of that accident. So there is no God. This is just a big cosmic accident. Well, if there is no God, then there is no ultimate value system. Who's to say what is right and wrong? If there's no ultimate value system, there's no ultimate good or evil. So you've just eradicated the problem of evil. Because now you're left with your own values. Well, you know, what I think is good and what you think is good may be different. That's my point. And so in our culture, we may think we should honor our parents. But you can go to another culture, and it's very okay to eat your parents and to clean your plate. There are cultures where the values are different. So who's to say what is right and wrong? When you take God away, you take ultimate values away. Another way that people have dealt with good and evil is agnosticism. It simply means, I don't know. There may be a God, but I can't be sure. That's what agnostic means. It comes from two words, gnosis or gnosis, knowledge, and the little prefix, a, without knowledge. I don't know. Usually that's a term that is touted as a very proud kind of a term. I'm an agnostic. I'm always quick to remind my agnostic friends And yes, I have some. When they boast about being an agnostic, the Latin translation, the Latin equivalent of agnostic, as some of you know, is ignoramus. It's not a slur, it's just a fact. But who would boast and say, I am an ignoramus? It simply means this. I know that evil exists. And when I look at evil that is existing around me, it turns me into one big question mark. Why? And I don't know. Now let me say that true agnosticism is very commendable if it's actually practiced, and it seldom is practiced. A genuine agnostic will do everything he can to see if there really is evidence for God and to follow that line of thinking. After all, everything depends on it. Happiness now, eternity later, and dealing with the problem of evil. Usually, however the agnostic will not be honestly chasing after the answer, but just sort of becomes very pessimistic and self-indulgent. Because I can't know if there's a God, because I'll never know, at least I will do what I can to make sure that while I live, I'll be as happy and filled with pleasure as possible. I'll stuff all the experiences of pleasure that I can in my life. I'll become self-indulgent. Now, perhaps we've all known people like that. And what's the end result of a person who's always trying to make themselves happy? They get burned out with it. They become eventually very pessimistic in life. Because nothing in experience of just life satisfies you ultimately. So you become fatalistic. You become very pessimistic. Like this guy, Dr. Albert Zent Georgi. Try to say that ten times. Dr. Alp. No, I'm just kidding. Dr. Albert... Well, I can't even say it once. <laughs> Zent Georgi. He was a Nobel laureate prize winner in medicine and physiology. Brilliant guy. Made it to the top. He was asked, if he were 20 years old again, what would he do? What was, would his advice be? He said, I would share with my classmates the rejection of the world as it is. Is there any point in studying and work? Fornication, he said, at least that's something good. What else is there to do? Fornicate and take drugs against this terrible strain of idiots who govern the world. Boy, you don't want to go to a guy like that for counseling, do you? An absolute pessimist. Fatalistic in his outlook. Now, there's another way that people have dealt with the problem of evil, and that's deism. Deism said, yes, there is evil. Yes, there is a God, but obviously God isn't around. He's taken a long vacation, a leave of absence. It's the great clockmaker who wound up the universe and stepped back to watch what happens. Uh, From this camp came the God is dead thinking in the 1960s. God once was, but he's not really involved anymore. Doctor, or rabbi, I should say, who is also a doctor, uh, Harold Kushner, who wrote the book you may be aware of, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, is of this camp. This is what he said. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he can't always arrange it. And then he encourages the reader to forgive God. Come on, mankind should forgive poor old God. Because he says there are some things God doesn't control. Okay, now let's move from the camp of the world to the camp of the church. Within the camp of the church, the way people have dealt with the problem of evil sometimes isn't always the right way. Another way to deal with it is what I call false theology. It says this, Yes, there is evil in this world, but if you're a real Christian, you don't have to experience any of it. If you're a real Christian, you never have to be sick. If you have enough faith... If you make the right confession, you can always have the best. You can have a Ferrari instead of a Volkswagen. You can always be perpetually healthy. That's the thinking of that camp. uh, It's saying we will give you Christianity with no unpleasant aftertaste. It's the Wall Street gospel. It's not the Christian gospel. Uh, It is simply an oversimplification of complex issues. And it breeds nothing but guilt. Nothing but guilt. Because if you ever are sick, if you ever aren't as prosperous, after all, it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. You're not as godly. You're not as spiritual. Remember Job's three friends? They tried to pull that off. Job is sick. He's scraping himself. He's on dust and ashes. And uh, they come up to him and say, Well, Job, you know, it's because there's sin in your life. Even though God said he's the most righteous person on earth of anyone, including them. They're saying, you've got sin in your life. They will say, those in this camp, false theology, false teaching, they will say, well, if you are a Christian and you are sick, uh, it's because of wrong thinking and wrong speaking. You should make positive confessions. Uh, For example, you should never say things like, I could just die. Don't say that, you just might. Or, if you're starting to feel bad, never admit it. If you say, you know, I'm starting to feel a little sick. (gasps) You've just sown a negative seed. Don't you know you're going to get sick? Um, I have always wondered when I've heard that, tongue-in-cheek, well, what happens if you say, well, I'll be a monkey's uncle? (laughs) Would you turn into a primate? Well, let's dismiss that and go to a biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is, yes, there is a God. Yes, he is real. Yes, he is all-powerful. Yes, he is loving. Yes, evil exists. And there are many reasons for it. But one day, one day, God will eradicate it totally. He will erati- He has a plan to eradicate it. may not be now, but he will deal with it. You say, well, uh, you just mentioned there's a lot of reasons for evil. What are they? Here's a few. Number one, the presence of... Of an evil super being called Satan. I mean you believe in a literal devil? As much as I believe in a literal God. And his rebellion has caused ramifications in humanity for generations. We still feel those ramifications. Second, free choice. Anytime you have free choice, you have a risk. Will they make the right choice? Will they choose to accept me or will they reject me? Will they do good or will they do evil? And so you can have somebody deciding to do evil like a dictator who says, I'm just going to kill six million people at the drop of a hat. Because for love to exist, there must be free choice. Then there's another reason, and that's simply natural laws that are defied. For instance, we know there's gravity. Now, if I decide to jump off of a skyscraper, I might say, I won't splat, I won't splat, I won't splat. I can make the confession all day long, but if I jump, uh, barring that I have some kind of apparatus to uh, supersede that law, I'm going to splat. If I build my house on a fault line where an earthquake may happen, if an earthquake does happen, that's one of the reasons it has happened. It's a natural law. The earth is adjusting. Or if I step in the way of a hurricane, a hurricane is one of... Uh, The ways that the earth releases pent-up energy It can be defied If I defy it, there's a problem Now, I doubt that Asaph is running through this litany Of all the different variables in his mind I think he's simply speaking from his gut, from his heart Man, I look around and what I see Really ticks me off, God He's at a crossroads in his life He's struggling with this that he sees And he goes through these stages All right Let's go now to verse 13 and see the tendency at that kind of a time. Uh, If you believe God is good, but everything around you says uh, God isn't good, otherwise things would be different, the tendency is to say, then why am I living a good life? Why am I trusting God at all? Look at verse 13. Asaph says, Surely I have cleansed my heart for nothing, in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Now, folks, here's the honest confession of a struggling believer. Now, why, what good is it to trust God when you say he's good, but all the bad people seem to be better off than the good people? Why did I do it? It's worthless. It's good for nothing. Now, some would say this is negative confession. Let me just say that he says honestly what we just think, but we're afraid to say sometimes. He writes it down. He says, I can't abandon God, but I can't act like a hypocrite and act like I've got victory in this. That's why he said in verse 16, it was just too too painful for me. I feel torn. Look back at verse 15. If I had said I will speak this way, if I'm going to talk about this, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. What he's saying is this. I'm afraid to tell God's people about this because they may not be able to handle the depth of suffering that I'm expressing. After all, Asaph is a leader. He's like the Levite. He's the song leader of church. For him to admit these problems could shake, especially the young believer, cause him to stumble. (gasps) Can you believe what Asaph said? Now let me just say this. If you expect Christians to always understand what you are feeling, you are in for a mega shock. If you think, oh, I can just divulge my heart to anyone and everyone. After all, that's the spirit of honesty. You're in for a shock. Because they will either A, say, I can't believe you said that. And I'm so disappointed with you. Or they'll give you some little pat answer. Well, God bless you. And you'll feel like they don't really understand. But there's something else to notice. Isn't it great to know that even spiritual guys like Asaph struggled with some of these issues? Others who have gone before us, as spiritual as they are, have struggled with these hard issues. So he's at a crossroads, a critical issue. What will he do? Well, he's not going to go the way of agnosticism, atheism, deism, or false theology. What he'll do is take the right step. Let's see what step he takes. That's verse 17. He said it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. Now, this is the turning point. For whatever reason, Asaph steps into the temple in Jerusalem, the place where people worship God, the place where sacrifices are made. He sees people coming into the temple, and now he sees everything differently. It could be that stepping into the temple, he noticed the priest over there on the altar of sacrifice slitting the throat of an animal that was innocent, draining its blood, putting its carcass on the altar, and the fire consuming it. Here's an innocent victim dying for my sin. And he thought, that horrible consummation is the result of my sin. That's what sin does. That's what will happen to the sinners, the rebellious. They'll be cut off from God forever. Or maybe he was just with the great throng of people entering into the temple. They're there to worship God. And he saw the simple people struggling in their own lives, maybe suffering because of something that had happened. But here they are trusting, looking to God, worshiping God. And it helps put everything into perspective. Do you know that that's one of the purposes of worship? When we gather together for worship, it changes our perspective We're reminded in song of an attribute of God. We're taught in the scripture and our little narrow focus broadens out. And we see things with eternal perspectives. That's why it's important whenever we're going through struggles like this to rush to fellowship with other believers. Read the Bible. Pray. And yet, why is it that that's exactly what we don't do many times? Many times Christians who struggle with an issue in their lives or a pain or a hurt say, that's it, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read the Bible. It's sort of like, I'm going to take my football and go home, God. I got a ticket. They got the new car. I quit. Oh, how we need our perspective, our sights elevated. So Asaph could have prayed anywhere, but he goes into the temple and he's reminded of some eternal truths. Verse 17, he said, I understood. Let me just say that church is to be something where you understand things. It's not just a place to feel good. It's a place to understand truth. So I came in and I understood. What did he understand? He understood a few things. Number one, the destiny of the wicked. Verse 18, he says, surely you set them in slippery places. Now, what did he just say? My feet almost slipped. Now he's saying, man, they're in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation is in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakens, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. He understands it's not always as important where you are as where you're going He's been looking at where they're at. Look at what they got, man. They got everything. They're so happy. Look at me. I have trusted God. Why? Look, where's it gotten me? Now he thinks way ahead into eternity. And he goes, Whoosh. they're that far away from total destruction, separation for all of eternity from God. In the eternal perspective, they're worse off. Remember, Jesus said, what is a prophet if you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul? So in the eternal perspective, they're bad off. They're sort of like, to use another analogy, like people set it, sitting on the deck of a boat in lounge chairs having a great time. It just happens to be they're on the Titanic. It's a great time, but it's very short-lived. It's very temporary. So he understands the destiny of the wicked. He also understands the blessings of belonging to God, verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved. My, I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. I love that. God isn't waiting for you to have a strong grip. He's holding on to you. You will hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. The next time you feel God hasn't given you a fair shake, read these verses. The next time you, like Asaph, says, What good is it following you, God? Look, look what it's got me into. And look at these unbelieving, wicked people who seem so carefree and happy. Read these verses. I'm still with you, and afterwards you'll receive me into glory. Remember the prodigal son? Who was it that was angry with the father who blessed the prodigal son? His older brother. The older brother sat over there, arms crossed, looking at his dad, throwing a big party for the kid who squandered everything. And remember the father said these words Why are you so angry? He said to him, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. David, excuse me, Asaph comes to that realization. I'm always with God. Everything that God has, all of his resources are mine. And afterwards, he'll receive me into glory. So in verse 27 and 28, he ends right back on top. He said, For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Now, remember, he was just about ready to say, it's not good to trust God. He ends up by saying, it is good to trust God. I've got the eternal perspective now. Asaph's window has been shattered. God has, so to speak, replaced the windowpane. He now sees clearly once again. He's gone into the sanctuary. He sees the full perspective. So this psalm is sort of like a skyscraper. It begins with the blueprint. God is good. That's what I believe. And uh, picture a guy with a bunch of set of blueprints in his hands, and he opens them up, and he says, that's what it's going to look like. The skyscraper is going to look like this when it's all done. But with that in mind, he goes out the very next day and looks at the place where the skyscraper is supposed to be, and he sees a huge hole dug now they're digging the foundation, but he looks and says, mud, muck. Ooh, that doesn't look like this. The blueprint looks much better than that. That's not what I expected. But hang on, buddy. Hold out. The longer you watch that thing come together, you'll see it rise. It'll be even more spectacular than was what was on the blueprint. And that's how the psalm is. God is good. Then he sinks down into the hole. Then he comes back out and he says, it is good to trust God. So. What do you do when a pebble shatters your window? What do you do? Well, let me give you a few courses of advice. Number one, realize that even the most spiritual people have been there and done that. You're not the first. A lot of other people have struggled with you. Secondly, begin by what you know is true. Like Asaph, God is good. Here's my grid of foundational truth. Begin with the grid of foundational truth. Then, when that truth is challenged, don't run away. Don't retreat. Don't say, Give me my football, I'm going home. Instead, retreat toward God's people. Retreat to the Bible, to prayer. Trust God and come near to Him, and you'll grow because of it. Do you remember perhaps as a kid, your parents would say things like, Not now, son, but later? Wait. You hated that word wait because you wanted immediate gratification. When am I going to get that toy? Not now, later. When are we going to the water park? Not now, later. When am I going to get to drive my own car? (laughs) Not now, later. Now you'll grow up and you'll experience all of those things, but not now, later on. So we look at evil. God, why? And I can almost hear God saying to Asaph, not now, but later. That's why he says, in the end, you will receive me into glory. Now, that's got to help sustain you when the going gets tough. Afterwards, after it's all over, God will receive me into glory. As a James Gray put it, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? Look where you're going. Not where you are, where you're going. When the road leads home. So, if present suffering translates into future glory, so be it. Because temporary joy and glory that the unbeliever has, that's all he has. That's all he has. That's all he'll ever have unless there's a turning to God. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that there were others who described the anxiety that they feel when the truth that they've always believed in is challenged by their own experience. Lord, I pray that like Asaph, when our window shatters, when the panes of glass are unclear, when we can't see you, you're not crisp anymore, that we wouldn't leave the house and search for another place to live, that we would make the right step. We'd be honest, of course. But we would come into the sanctuary. We consider eternal truths. We consider our experience in the light of forever. And with that, we come out the other end trusting you. Lord, I would pray for those people today who have come, who have been living up to this point only in the here and now, the temporary. What can I get out of life? How can I be happy at all costs? Living only for themselves. Lord, I pray that in the scheme of eternal truth, they would see that apart from Jesus Christ, they have nothing. And Lord, I pray that there would be a turning toward you today. That they would begin living life in the perspective of forever. They'd start making choices in light of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.